Dana, as you know, has been with us for every book she's ever written, and so has Doug. So this is really kind of a landmark event for us to do one for them together. And it is a fundraiser, and Doug will explain to you why we are doing it for the Authors Guild and some very important work that they are doing. And if he doesn't, I will prod him to tell you about the role of James Patterson in all this, which is really quite profound. Um, Hey, great news for Jim, right? Um, because he does he does give away um, a huge amount of money every year to support independent bookstores and independent booksellers. In fact, Patrick was the recipient of one of the, I think it was actually the very first year that Jim gave away grants to independent booksellers to help them, um, you know, in their careers and so forth. So many thanks to you, Jim, and you'll be impressed with what he's doing for the Authors Guild. So um, Diana is appearing again on April 22nd with a Hebridean baker whose name I cannot pronounce, so I'm not even going to give it a shot. What did I say? Oh, sorry. February 20. I'm actually booking events in August, so I am frequently completely confused. I'm sorry. April 22nd, and it will be... Did I do it again? So glad this is live so you can all watch me be an idiot. Right. <laughs> February 22nd, and we have a new and interesting off-site venue at the United Methodist Church, which is about six blocks from here. It's up um, Indian School, and you take a left at Miller, and it's right there, and it has loads of parking in the front, but it also has parking on the back side of the church. And even better, it has padded pews. <laughs> So that's where we're going to be, and uh, that is also a ticketed event. So if you want to see Diana, who has just come in in her Lunar Chinese New Year salute outfit, is that what we're doing? Yep. Um, you have a chance to go and see the baker and Diana. Right. So uh, let's welcome Doug Preston and Diana Gabaldon to the Poison Pen once again. Now that I've tried to convince everybody that we're doing your next event in April, D, I'm really <laughs> sorry. <laughs> what can I say? I um, <laughs> right. But I can say that actually Doug, this is part of my confusion, Doug will be here on April 22nd with an interesting new book called Extinction, which today got a starred review in Publishers Weekly that likened it to the very best of Michael Crichton. Ooh. <laughs> and James, James Rollins is going to come and be our co-host. So that'll be really exciting, won't yeah, it? That's going to be a great evening. It will. So we are, as I mentioned, here to talk about the Authors Guild and also 14 days in which Diana has two stories, Doug has one, and apparently can't remember too much else about the book, but he's going to share what he does know <laughs> with you. <laughs> so, um, and we do have, we gave you numbered tickets, so thank you for doing that. And when we're done, you can line up by number. And if you want to take a photo or something, you can do that. So is everybody clear about what we're doing? Yep. Okay. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Barbara. And uh, Diana, thank you. Wow, it's really great to be here with you. Yeah, that's not a lovely evening out. At least the rain hasn't reached us yet. I know. <laughs> it's on the way in. <laughs> in your home territory. Really? So, but... Uh, 
Well, uh, so, so, so Barbara has abandoned us. She's not going to be asking questions. <laughs> um, I'm absolutely terrified. Um, but uh, anyway, the, uh, so the book, this is a very, I'll just talk a little bit about the, how this book came about and what it is. And then uh, we'll, and then we'll talk about, about Diana's two beautiful stories that she wrote for this book. But uh, so I was president of the Authors Guild, which is America's oldest and largest associate, professional association of authors. And when COVID hit, um, the organization was very uh, in, in a financial bind. I mean, in a, I mean, we were we were really in trouble financially. And so we said, oh well, let's let's publish a book, and maybe we'll make some money. <laughs> and um, so we had this idea of a collaborative novel, a pandemic novel. And the basic idea is a bit like the Decameron or the Canterbury Tales or A Thousand and One Nights. It's a, it's a story within a story and often sometimes even stories within stories um, with a frame narrative holding it all together. And the idea is that it's a group of New Yorkers who are in a shabby building in the Lower East Side uh, you know, they're stuck there in quarantine for, you know, 14 days in lockdown um, in the very early days of the COVID pandemic, which really hit New York very hard at this time. And being typical New Yorkers, they don't know each other and they don't want anything to do with each other. And uh, so they, but they go up to the roof, they break the lock on the door, they go up on the roof uh, and they just sit in there fiddling with their phones and drinking margaritas and smoking weed. And, and then at 7 o'clock, they cheer on the, the first responders, which is what they did in New York during those days. But eventually, they start talking to each other, even though they have nothing in common. And eventually, they start telling stories to each other. These are not pandemic stories. These are stories about their lives, uh, about... Well, everything, um, their lives, their loves, uh, confessions of crime, of murder, um, stories about death, stories about birth, uh, ghost stories, uh, stories of war and, th and things like that. And um, so at the Authors Guild, we, you know, the, the Authors Guild represents all authors. Uh, and that includes poets, journalists. Uh, fiction authors, nonfiction authors, literary authors, science fiction, romance, everything. How do you, how do you do, how do you bring all these authors together in one literary work? Um, because we didn't want to just limit it by genre, so we um, decided that we would just ask of an incredibly diverse range of authors to write a story in the first person without any preconditions, without any rules, without any length requirements or anything like that. And, and Diana um, contributed two absolutely beautiful stories. And I'm just going to mention this, and then I'm gonna, we're gonna, I want Diana to talk a little bit about her contributions. But you know, the stories in this book are from every genre. You know, we have romance authors, historical authors, nonfiction authors, but what really interested me was when the stories came in, many of the authors decided to write a story far outside their genre. And Diana's two stories are true stories. And am I right to say that? I mean, I, I read them and I said, these are not 
fiction. This is true. And they're beautiful, true stories. And then we had many nonfiction writers, like Hampton Sides, who wrote fiction stories. And poets who wrote, uh, you know, crazy stories. And um, so, anyway, that's really how the book came about. And it took four years to put it together because it was an enormous job. But, uh, but anyway, so, so Dan, I just wanted to, to ask you about your two stories, where they came from, and how you happened to contribute them to this anthology. Ah, well, let's see. Um, I would like to pretend that I had written them expressly for this anthology, but in fact, I didn't. Um, <laughs> I wrote both of them you know, a number of years ago, uh, closer to the times when these incidents actually happened. Um, and I wrote one of those stories because it concerned the night my father died, and I knew my, um, excuse me, I knew my sister would want to know what happened. And so I wrote it down for her. And then later, you know, I shared that story with uh, with friends and, and relatives and so forth. But, you know, I just kept it. And uh, the other one was, uh, um, uh, well, it was, I met a ghost in the Alamo is what it comes down to, <laughs> which is, you know, actually a place where you might expect to meet one. Yeah. And I'm kind of surprised there was only one. But <laughs> on the other hand, he was the first ghost that I had actually met, you know, in person, so to speak, uh, without any doubt. And I had told that story to a number of people. And uh, at, at some point, I wrote it down for someone else uh, who had asked me for a story. You know, I, uh, back in the day when they had more uh, small conferences and, you know, chapter meetings and things like that of writers' groups, often they would put together sort of a, an amateur anthology to go with the conference. And these were composed of stories contributed either by the people attending the conference or the presenters or a combination of both. And so often they would ask me for a story, and sometimes I just said, look, no, I don't write short stories, which is true. He <laughs> 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 asked me what happened the last time I wrote a short story. <laughs> but, but, mm, yeah, what was that event? Yeah, Lord John and, <laughs> and the private matter. Yeah, yeah. no, I did. I wrote, uh, uh, I did write one short story for an anthology, and the anthologist asked me for another one, and I said, I'll see what I can do. So I started working on this short story, and uh, a few months later I was having lunch with my two agents, uh, U.S. and foreign, in uh, New York. And they said, well, what have you been working on? And I said, oh, well, I've been writing this short story. Uh, I'm almost through with it. And they said, oh, how long is this one? <laughs> and I said, well, it's about 90,000 words so far, but I, yeah, I'll be done in a week or two. And they looked at each other, and they looked at me, and they said, that's not a short story. <laughs> and I said, I thought it was a short story. And they said, no, it's a book. And so they took it off and sold it to everybody inside, and sure enough, it was a book. But... <laughs> Anyway, that's what happens when I start to write a book or a short story on purpose. Uh, the, sh the nonfiction, though, have actual limits because you reach the end of the story and that's it. So uh, anyway, I wrote down the story of the ghost in the Alamo for some other purpose. But over the years, I have shared those stories with people who call me up and say, oh, we're putting together an anthology. Could you give us a short story? I say, yeah, sure, here. <laughs> but <laughs> so, uh, most of the anthologies are, like, as I say, very small local kinds of ones. Uh, so now we get national uh, attention, owing to your generosity and inviting me to participate. <laughs> well, they're 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 really remarkable, beautiful stories. But I'm I'm curious. You know, you mostly write fiction. When you're writing nonfiction, does how is it different from writing fiction for you? Well, I don't have to stop and think. Well, what happens next is <laughs> the main thing. Uh, no, I mean writing is is writing. You know. Uh, 
I was a scientist for a long, long time before I became a, a novelist. And you know, I wrote um, scientific journal articles and so forth, and uh, software reviews and anything anybody would pay me to, essentially. And I got continuous jobs because I knew how to actually write. You know, <coughs> excuse me. It's not just noun, verb, noun, verb, et cetera. You know, you uh, include things. You include atmosphere, even if it's a software review. And consequently, I stayed employed <laughs> for many years writing freelance. And a good thing, too, because they don't pay you that much as a scientist. But, yeah, no, it's just uh, it's just skill. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, well, that's interesting because I, I sometimes write fiction and nonfiction. And I find when I'm writing nonfiction, I was like, damn, I wish I could just make some stuff up here. <laughs> this is, you know. And then when I'm writing fiction, I'm like, oh, my God, it's just... What am I going to do here? I wish I had some facts to, to base this <laughs> on. You know. So. Yeah, I love your nonfiction, by the way. I've just read Lost Tombs, which is just great. Oh, thank love you, that. thank uh -huh. you. But uh, so, so when, when you were first approached with this project, what did they tell you? Because I, I didn't actually recruit the authors myself. Mm -hmm. Margaret Atwood did that. Yeah. And so what, what kind of idea did they give you ab about the project? Or did you have uh, any? They just described it in general, <clears throat> you know, what the premise was, that we have these uh, New Yorkers who are trapped and uh, by the pandemic and are passing the time because they're trapped. And what do you do <laughs> if you're stuck with a lot of strangers? As you start telling them stories to avoid them asking you questions. And uh, so, <laughs> so that made sense to me. I said, okay. <laughs> and, uh, normally it's a lot easier to tell people stuff than to answer questions. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I said, okay, well, it sounds you know, worthy cause and all of that, and it's safely in the future. So, okay, we'll think about it. Anyway, so time got closer, and I was thinking, I don't have time to you know, make up short stories. And so it's a lot of trouble to write a short story. <laughs> and I said, but I have these. So, you know, uh, if these are any good to you, by all means. Well, have you, have you written, because when I read those two, I thought, you know, Diana should write her memoirs, because those are really powerful stories, and they're part of a bigger life. Have you ever thought of writing your memoir, or have you even begun, or is that something you've considered? Well, I guess I've been writing it in small pieces over the last 30 years or so. Um, I belong to something called the Lit Forum, which is a, it's an online site. Anybody can come in and uh, sit in or join or whatever. But it's people who like books. It's not just writers, but there are a number of writers, both professional, would-be, and so forth. And back when I stumbled into the place in 1983, <laughs> which was about as far back as, as it was possible to have online, uh, you know, it was a very friendly, small place. <coughs> Excuse me, and uh, people would exchange bits of their life story, or you know, say, "Oh, this particular thing happened to me last week." Does anybody have any advice about what I could do about this? And people would chip in and so forth. But it's it's like a, a very long-running <laughs> uh, literary cocktail party. But people do include, you know, these uh, these pieces of their lives. And you know, we've known each other forever. It's a very relaxed sort of place. People, new people come in and. And either they fit in or they get bored with it and leave. <laughs> and uh, so it, it's sort of a constant running thing. But over the year, many, many years, I have written lots of pieces of my life, so to speak, wherever they seem applicable. And I never throw anything away, so I've got it all. <laughs> <laughs> so, but are you, are you going to put it together, do you think? I mean, you really... Well, if I live long enough, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you have a few more years. Well, I hope so. I'm 72. I mean, you don't know. So. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, well, you know, one of the interesting things about this this book is that these stories, written by 36, you know, famous, uh, distinguished authors, the stories themselves in the, in the novel are told by fictional characters. So when you read the novel, you don't know who wrote what story. And in fact, we made it very difficult 
to figure out who wrote what story. You have to go to the back of the book and you have to flip through. And, you, you know, it's very difficult because we wanted to sort of make it a literary puzzle and make it fun for the reader not to know. So I'm curious, you know, your two stories are told by two different characters. And uh, what do you think of the characters who tell your stories? Well, one of them I don't know about, The Ghost in the Alamo. I have not actually read it in the context of that book, so I don't know. They did send me the uh, the draft of the adaptation of the other story, and uh, what I thought of it, and I said, well, I I kind of don't like the, the structure that you have around it because, you know, this is uh, a story that involves my New Mexican grandmother, yeah. and I said, the people that you have talking in here sound like Puerto Ricans to me. <laughs> 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 this is not right. <laughs> So that's how they apologized and said they would fix it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well we, that, yeah we definitely fixed that. Yes. Puerto Ricans and Cubans don't sound like New Mexicans, believe me. No. I mean, it's all Spanish, but it doesn't sound the same. Well, it's interesting. Speaking of your New Mexican ancestors, when I first moved to Santa Fe, um, I bought five acres of land outside of Santa Fe in the rural area, and it was in the ancient... It was in an ancient um, land grant that had been granted to a Spanish family by the Emperor of Spain. And the name of the grantee was Juan de Gabaldon, a uh, very uh, an important early, who came to Santa Fe uh, in that area in uh, 1598. Isn't that right? I mean, it was very early. Anyway, it was very early. Um, one of the came with, with uh, some of the early Spanish settlers. So I lived on your, you know, your ancestors' property for You're a while. You're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it's very it. nice. <laughs> it's a lovely, lovely place. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, so, so putting this thing together, we got, you know, 36 stories from all these wonderful authors. And then we had to figure out who was going to tell these stories and who the characters were. And so we asked some of the authors to actually contribute characters. But you did contribute the name of a character. Yeah. Um, but uh, we had other, uh, other authors say, oh, you know, they give us a little sketch and say, here's a character who could tell my story or here's, here's someone that maybe you could use. And uh, these were really great characters. And then I, I wrote the frame narrative, which was the narrative of of the person it works like this the uh, super of the building is a is a woman named Yessi and uh, she um, is just become super of the building when the lockdown occurs and so she's up on the roof drinking her margaritas every night and the, the tenants start coming up and this is really upsetting to her because she was hoping to have the roof to herself um, she put a lock on the door but one of the tenants broke the lock and so they're all coming up and uh, so she stays quiet, and as they start to tell stories and talk to each other, she takes out her cell phone and puts it on record because she has this habit. Before COVID, she had this habit of, of being in bars or whatever, and men would come on to her and say a bunch of stupid, asinine things, and she'd record them just for her own uh, pleasure <laughs> later to listen to these jackasses and trying to pick her up. Um, and, and she's gay anyway, so she did never work. <laughs> so, um, so she starts recording the te these people talking. And then every night she goes back to her miserable basement apartment 
and transcribes the stories, but adding her own sarcastic commentary, dry, sarcastic commentary, because she doesn't really like the tenants. Because, you know, in a building in New York City, the super hates all the tenants. That's just part of what it's like. And so, so, she's, and so she's writing all this down, and, this, and she creates this gigantic manuscript. And at the end, it's this manuscript that becomes the book. Um, it's found on the rooftop. And there's a twist at the end of the, of the book when you get to the end. How many of you have actually read the book? Nobody. It was just published, right? You just got it. Okay. Actually, there, Doug, it doesn't a, publish till there, tomorrow. <laughs> there will be no spoilers. You know, you may you may skip some stories here and there, but but the end of the book has a big twist, and uh, it's kind of shocking. So, but uh, somebody pushes Yessie off the roof. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a there 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 is a, a possible jumper off the roof um, in the book. Um, that's never quite resolved. Did he jump or did he disappear? What happened? And you know, Margaret Atwood wrote a story. Now, these people are telling stories on the roof, and some of them are really weird stories. They're almost, you know, it's a bit of magical realism or hallucinogenic kind of thing. But uh, Margaret wrote a story, and the person telling the story, oh, I mean, this is a little tiny bit of a spoiler, but you, think, you start thinking, wait a minute, this person telling the story isn't actually a human being. <laughs> this is, this is a, a, an insect. This is a predatory spider <laughs> telling the story. So, yeah. And there, you'll see when you get to the end of the book how this is all explained. Because it looks kind of weird and surreal as you read the book, but the end explains everything. So... Uh, yes. Um, oh, God, yes. I mean, you know, but the wonderful thing is that you can create a character who can tell any kind of story. Like, for example, um, we got a wonderful story. Not a story, actually. It's an essay by James Shapiro, who is probably this country's leading Shakespeare scholar. And it's about Shakespeare writing King Lear, not during the the plague. Now, Everyone thinks that he wrote King Lear during the plague, and that's why the play is so violent and so sadistic and with people ripping their eyes out, you know, that sort of thing. But he, he writes this essay and says, well, this is not true. This is all wrong. And uh, I thought, when I read that, I thought, oh, my God, it's a fascinating essay, right? It's great. And it was, there was a lot of relevance in the essay to the pandemic. And he, he writes about the modern pandemic and, and how this, you know, relates to Shakespeare and, and the flea-ridden rats that ran through the streets of London. And uh, if one of those rats, you know, the fleas transmitted the bubonic plague, and it was a wonderful passage where he says, if one of those rats had taken a left instead of a right, it might have ended up in Shakespeare's lane, and he might have died of the plague, and then we would never know who, you know, we'd be reading Marlowe instead of Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so... I thought, oh my God, how how are we going to integrate this into this, you know, novel? Well, I said, all right, well we'll put a, a pretentious stuffed shirt Shakespeare scholar on the rooftop who tells the story, and of course it's a wonderful story. I don't know if James was all that happy with the portrayal of the character telling the story, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so, but 
anyway, so that, does, but integrating that, there was a poet, Ishmael Reed is a poet. He wrote a really crazy story um, about the Decameron. How many of you have read the Decameron? It's, it's, well, it's, it's, a, it's a plague novel. It was written in, the, in 1348 by an Italian named Boccaccio. Um, who, and it's about a group of noble lords and ladies from Florence who go off to a, a castle in the hills outside of Florence and tell stories to sequester themselves from the plague, from the Black Plague that was sweeping Florence at the time. So this is a little bit like that, but very different in the sense that instead of noble lords and ladies going off to the Hamptons, right, uh, or to the Cape Cod to escape the pandemic, these are the left-behinds, the people on the roof that do, can't leave. They don't have the money. They don't have their second homes. And uh, so they are stuck. So, but uh, anyway, so, but yeah, it was putting, knitting these stories together was very difficult. In fact, the first effort, I laid them all out, 36 stories, and then, uh, I wrote the frame narrative, and then I looked at it, and not just me, but the editor looked at it at HarperCollins and said, you know, this doesn't work. Let's start over again. So we had to rip the whole thing up and start over again. That's why it took four years. It was, you know, I've, I've written 40 books, and by far this was the hardest literary project I've ever worked on. But the end is, you know, as they say, the finest steel passes through the hottest fire. The end was, is something, I think, kind of special. So. so, Doug, why don't you tell us what the end, I mean, why, why this book is important in terms of what it's going to help the Authors Guild do? Well, that is, that is very interesting. The Authors Guild um, uh, is all the proceeds from this book are supporting the Authors Guild Foundation. And the money is going to fight book banning, and, and we, the, you know, the, the Authors Guild, we're actually, we have attorneys on staff. We have six attorneys on staff who are copyright and, fr and free expression attorneys. Um, we're actually suing the book banners, and we are winning every lawsuit, or we're joining with lawsuits uh, against these book banners, um, and uh, writing amicus briefs and so forth. So the battle isn't just in the public, the, the arena of public opinion, it's also in the, the courts. And we're winning that battle. The other battle that we're involved in is uh, the uh, a AI. You know, now AI is here, nothing's gonna turn that back. But what has happened here is that the AI systems like OpenAI, ChatGPT. Um, ChatGPT in particular, they took 200,000 copyrighted books and ingested them, used those books to train ChatGPT. Without the permission of the authors, all of Diana's books, by the way, were stolen. All of my books were stolen. Um, and you can, you can actually find this out. And without compensation and without asking our permission, and they're building, or they have built, uh, a company, OpenAI, which is now valued at $100 billion. And thousands of people are using AI to now write books that are being sold on Amazon, um, 
and competing with books written by human beings. So we sued OpenAI and Microsoft. Um, and uh, we have, it's a class action lawsuit on behalf of all fiction writers. Diana's in the class. I'm actually one of the named plaintiffs. And uh, another group is sued on behalf of nonfiction writers. The two suits are probably going to be joined. But the point of these suits is to first establish legally that this is not fair use, because they're trying to say this is fair use, right? Oh, the, you know, oh, oh, by the way, do you know where they got those 200,000 books? You know, our books are not sitting on the internet just, you know, ready to be, you know, you know, taken. <laughs> you know, you have to buy them, right? Um, and then they have, they, have, they have copy protection. ChatGPT got these 200,000 books from Russian piracy websites. Piracy websites of all our books that have been stolen with the DRM removed, um, uh, operated by Russian um, crooks. That's where they got the text of all these books. Just absolutely shameless. So we're suing them. <laughs> and that's... And you are helping. <laughs> yes, you are helping. When you buy this book, you are helping finance that, um, plus also the book banning. So, so Doug, I brought up... Not really, because a lot of what's happening can't be talked about. There's sort of, you know, a lot of lawsuits, you, you don't want to talk too much about them. Like, I've been told, don't talk a lot about this lawsuit, because OpenAI is going to get a recording of, of what I'm saying, of my words, and then they're going to take them into court, and they're going to look and see if there's anything they can use against me as one of the plaintiffs in court. So I have to be very careful what I say. So, uh, you know. We're, we're so happy to hear about something like this going on because we talk amongst ourselves. This is horrible. How can you ban To Kill a Mockingbird? Now, who would want to ban the Bible? Well, it, 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 we need to push back against this. It's not, it's un-American, you know. No one is forced to read a book. It's, the book is there, and, you know, and it's not just about school libraries where young people might have access to inappropriate material. These, they're, they're trying to ban books in bookstores. They're trying to ban books from libraries. Um, they're, they're trying to, um, you know, call them pornography and, and this sort of thing. So it's, it's, uh, and have they ever tried to ban any of your books? Yeah, once in a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. but it's usually uh, a school board, you know, in some small town, and they found a copy of Outlander in the high school library. Yeah. <laughs> Went nuts. Actually, <laughs> 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 so I've seen my books in a lot of high school libraries. I have not seen them in any, ele any elementary schools, you know, for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You'd have to be quite a, a kid to take a, a ten-pound, you know, Outlander book home, but. But do they, are, they, are they banning it because they object to the sex in the books, or what is exactly? Oh, various. Let's see. Uh, some of them object to uh, what they consider witchcraft in the books and oh, so forth. Not really? that there is any, but yeah. Oh but, my God. Uh, well, 
well, it's uh, entertaining that in Outlander there is an actual witch trial of the uh, the main character who is a time traveler, and so of course people think she's a witch. <laughs> well, maybe they think that, that the, the circle of stones or something mm -hmm. is sort of well, a, yeah, you a have druid, you know. Yeah, they're ancient and mystical. You know, obviously this is not not right. <laughs> you can't expose innocent young minds to this sort of thing. But, but how do you react to that when you hear that they're banning your books? Do you, um, what are your thoughts? Of, I mean, it <laughs> I don't, you know, try and confront them personally because yeah. <laughs> you know it's usually a, a school board. You know, it's mm -hmm. not an individual and so forth who would be approachable. And you know, it is. Um, I usually only hear about it because someone is suing them, you know, in yeah. which case my books are included in that. So Yeah. Do you do you get a lot of uh, of letters from young people who've read your books who mm -hmm. love them and Yeah, I yeah. have. Yeah, my uh youngest fan was nine years old from France. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> they start early there. And um <laughs> the eldest so far is ninety seven. <laughs> Still oh, able good. to write in her own handwriting. <laughs> Wow, yeah. that's fantastic. Well, what a precocious nine-year-old. He was. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it was a short letter, but everything was spelled right. Was <laughs> <laughs> Did he read it in English or in French? Uh, the letter was in English, so I don't know yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever been to France on a book tour? I have, yeah. Because yeah, I, I did that, and I was mm -hmm. amazed. These huge lines of people. It was mm -hmm. like, this mm -hmm. is... The French really care about books. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been to the Lyon Book Fair? Is that no? Uh, no. Let's say I went to the. Where was it? Uh, went to one in Nancy, and yeah. uh, one in Paris. I've been several times, and then to, you know I've been to smaller ones here and there. Yeah. I kind of don't keep track. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. What, what what other area? I'm curious to know what other countries you've toured in for your books. Uh, Germany, uh, mm -hmm. several times. Mm -hmm. And then we changed publishers, and they uh, said, why are we wasting money people buy her books anyway? <laughs> so yeah. <we> <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, Italy, to some extent. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it was uh, short and dislocated. <laughs> yeah. Um, as in, they uh, told me I was going to address crowds at this particular bookstore, and my interpreter would... Uh, would be there. Okay, the interpreter wasn't there. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so I got up and addressed them in Spanish, and I said, you know, <laughs> this is what happened. I'm hoping you can catch a few words here and there. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I lived in Italy for a while, and I found that Italians can understand Spanish, mm -hmm. but Spaniards cannot understand Italian. Mm -hmm. It's very strange. It is strange. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to say Spaniards are strange because um, <laughs> one of my sons-in-law is half Spanish and his mother is a lovely person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that just to qualify a lovely person, I actually mean it. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that. Uh, the only thing about her is that uh, she speaks fluent English anyway and so forth. But uh, she is a Spaniard, which means that her idea of personal distance is like this, whereas mine is sort of like that. You know? So I'm sure the poor woman thinks I despise her because whenever she talks to me at great length, she moves closer and closer, and I keep backing up until <laughs> <laughs> I hit the kitchen counter, and then I duck to the side to get her a soft drink. <laughs> no, she's a very nice person and so forth. But uh, as a consequence of this, my two grandsons are bilingual because they've been taught, you know, to uh, speak Spanish as well as that. Mm -hmm. The funny thing is, though, that they don't want to speak Spanish. They understand anything you say to them in Spanish, but they'll answer you in English. And I don't know why, but they do. <laughs> anyway, uh, one time the, uh, they live in uh, Edinburgh, and they have public health, and the public health nurse comes to check up on your young children just to see, you know, are they growing right and all this kind of stuff, measure them. So she was talking to my daughter about... Uh, 
the little boys and you know uh, their education and so forth. They were like five and three at this point, and she's talking to the th- to them. And uh, my daughter's explaining, you know, that uh, that uh, we teach them to sm- speak Spanish and so forth, adding that they don't want to. <laughs> and and the little one lay on the three-year-old said, "I speak Spanish all the time." And they turned and <laughs> looked at the nurse and said, "Bonjour." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's funny. When, <laughs> when we lived in Italy, our kids became fluent in Italian, and so fluent that they, people thought they were Italian. But they never would speak Italian at home. And whenever we tried, they'd say, no, 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 we speak English at home. We don't speak Italian. <laughs> but we were in a cab going to, in Rome going to the airport, and the cab driver was asking us, hearing our miserable Italian and hearing our kids speak, said, where are you going? And we were, I said, we're going home for the, we're taking our kids home for the summer. And he pulled the cab off the road. He said, these are not your children. (laughs) (laughs) These are Italian children. We had to show him their passports because he wouldn't believe. (laughs) Anyway, well, maybe, maybe it's time to open it up for some, for some questions if people have questions. I have not. Uh, I would like to at, at some point. Yeah, as long as it's politically stable. <laughs> they do, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I uh, correspond with several very nice Brazilian fans. So forth. Likewise, Argentinians who keep trying to get me to go there. And, you know, at some point I would like to. Yes. <laughs> Are you showing pros as a group up on the rooftop or individually? Um, I believe. Why yeah, they're, 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 it's all, it's like it's a all group on the roof. Yeah. Socially distanced people on the rooftop telling stories to each other and then commenting on each other and then sometimes disagreeing with each other and mm-hmm. and getting pissed off at each other and uh, having well, arguments well, well, well. and <laughs> yeah well no it's just it's a group you know they're, they're they've all dragged their ugliest most rotten shares up onto the rooftop so they come up there every night to cheer the first responders and then they tell stories for an hour and then uh, when the bells of old St. Pat's ring at 8 o'clock. That's the end of their storytelling hour, and they go back to their miserable, dark, crummy apartments. (laughs) I I have a question for you, though, about Scotland. Have you ever done a book tour of Scotland or the UK? I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, several times. (laughs) They they must love it. They must love you. Uh, Yes, well, the um, Scottish Tourism Office visits Scotland uh, three or four years ago, gave me a Thistle Award at their big banquet for services to Scottish tourism. <laughs> well, they were nice enough to tell me that, according to their calculations, I personally, evidently, had, uh, had, well, had the outlander effect, as they put it, have managed to raise Scottish tourism by 72% just that year. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> That's pretty good. So what's your, what's your 10% commission on that? <laughs> I get a lot of plaid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Shawl, I do get whiskey. Yeah, that's a side benefit and so forth. <laughs> yes, no, the University of Glasgow just this last uh, July had the first ever um, scholarly conference on Outlander, uh, which they had uh, you know, 600 people attended and had 90 papers submitted. And it, was, uh, it was quite a yeah, small conference, but a, a success. Yeah, and that was all about, you know, wh- why why do my books make people want to go to Scotland? <laughs> so, <laughs> a 
amongst other things. But that got into a lot of scholarly things about uh, the resurgence of Gaelic, which they're also kind enough to lay at my feet. Well, you must, you, I mean, you, you just, your research is incredible. I mean, you must, you must spend a lot of time researching, ev you know, every book you write has an incredible amount of research in it. Is that, how do you do that? Uh, well, uh, I used to do it in the library uh, way back in the day when I started writing. I started writing Outlander in 1988. Uh, uh -huh. So um, the online world was pre-Google. Yeah. You really couldn't look things up there. Um, but, you know, I, I was a research scientist. I knew how to look mm -hmm. things up. That's why I decided to write historical fiction. I said, you know, if I come to something that I don't know about, I can uh, make it up and then check it. And <laughs> if it's uh, not right, I'll change it. You know, not a problem. I meet a lot of people who want to write historical fiction, and about 80% of them are convinced that they cannot write the first word unless they know absolutely everything about the Third Byzantinian Empire. <laughs> and I'm saying, well, obviously, you're never going to write the books. So I hope you really enjoy Byzantinian <laughs> history. Uh, no, but uh, people's approaches differ. I know a lot of people who will... Uh, sort of rough out a book and then make notes as to what they need to look up and then we'll do that before they come back and start writing. I just start writing where I can see something. I think, you know, if I write something and it turn out to be, turns out to be wrong, I will just fix it. You know, this is not a problem. Whereas if you sit around thinking, oh, I don't know enough, you'll be paralyzed and you won't write anything. It all starts with actually having words on paper. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, well, I wasn't. Um, <laughs> it was an accident, <laughs> like so much about my books. Yeah. Uh, no, what happened was that I wanted to write uh, a book for practice. I said, I'm never going to show this to anyone. This is just for me to learn what does it take to write a book. Because, you know, a book is a big thing, you know, and uh, you, aside from research entirely, it's how do you run a project like that that's going to take you, you know, a year or more than that to write the whole thing. How do you keep it in your mind? How do you keep yourself going? How do you connect the pieces if you don't write in a straight line, which I don't. And uh, I, don't write, I don't have a plot. I don't have an outline. I don't write in a straight line. It's kind of like playing Tetris in my head, but very slow. And uh, so anyway, I said, well, I'm going to write a book for practice so I can learn this. You know, what does it take in terms of project management and all this? Because I was a scientist. I knew about project management and all that. So I said, okay, uh, what's the easiest thing I could write for practice? No one's ever going to see this. It doesn't matter. And I said, well, maybe for me it would be historical fiction because, you know, I was a research scientist. I could go and look things up. <laughs> and uh, so I said, okay, uh, where in history? Because I don't have any background in history to speak of I'm, other than being just generally interested. So I was looking for a time and a place and thinking, you know, Venice under the Borgias, that's creepy and, you know, plague and all <laughs> that kind of stuff. But, you know, um, and, you know, Genghis Khan, yeah, well, he was good, but I'm, I kind of don't see anything happening around him. And, you know, different <laughs> kinds of things. Well, other than the obvious, you know, and everybody knows about that. So uh, I was thinking, and in this malleable frame of mind, I happened to see a really old Doctor Who rerun on public television. Uh, in the UK, everyone would know who Doctor Who is. I don't know if you, you do. Okay. Also, <laughs> great. <laughs> and I don't have to explain. So anyway, I was watching one of the really old episodes. It was the second Doctor, Patrick Troughton. And it was a, a sequence called War Games. But in this particular uh, 
thing. He had uh, one of his sidekicks, whom he picks up from different periods of Earth's history, was a young uh, uh, Scotsman whom he had picked up from 1745 and who appeared in his guild. And I said, well, that's kind of fancy, kind of fetching, you know. And so I was paying attention to this character, and he had one line that really caught my attention. I was thinking, hmm. So I was thinking about this the next day in church. You know, I don't claim divine revelation, but I was in church. <laughs> And <laughs> suddenly said, well, you know, you want to write a book. It doesn't really matter where you said it. Nobody's going to see it. The important thing is to get started. So I said, okay. So that's where I started. I went out after church, dragged an old shopping list out from under the front seat of my car, and began writing down just a couple of things I could see. And uh, that's where I started writing Outlander. <laughs> but, you know, things can <laughs> went on. And so I started thinking in an organized fashion about this and writing a little bit every day. Well, about the third day of writing, I was saying, well, I must have a lot of Scotsmen, of course, because of the kilt factor. But um, <laughs> I think it would be a good idea if I had uh, some uh, female character to play off these guys and we'll have sexual tension. That's good. That's conflict. And I said, okay, well, given the state of politics between <laughs> Scotland and England at the time, if I make her an English woman, we will have lots of conflict. <laughs> <laughs> so about the third or fourth day of writing, I introduced this English woman. I just uh, loosed her into a cottage full of Scotsmen to see what she'd do. Well, she walked in, and they're all crouched around the hearth muttering to each other. And uh, one of them catches a glimpse of her, and he stands up and said, my name is Dougal Mackenzie, and who might you be? And without stopping to think, I just typed, my name's Claire Elizabeth Beecham, and who the hell are you? <laughs> and I said, well, you don't sound at all like an 18th century person. So, uh, you know, I, I, tried, I fought with her for a page or two, trying to beat her into shape and make her talk like an 18th century woman, but she wasn't having any. She just kept making smart-ass modern remarks about everything she saw. And uh, she also took over and started telling the story herself. So I said, okay, fine. <laughs> I'm going to fight with you all the way through this book. You know, go ahead and be modern. I'll figure out how you got there later. So that's why there's time traveled in the books. <laughs> oh, that's what a fascinating story. Oh. Yeah, that we d there are certain characters telling stories by several multiple authors. Um, so, yeah, that that uh, it was important that the character telling the story have the kind of background and voice that the author who wrote originally wrote the story had. So, for example, the the person who tells one of Diana's stories is is a librarian from the Whitney Museum, because Diana's stories have a very uh, obviously a very elegant and literary, it's, it's an elegant literary voice. Um, and you, so you, you can't have, you know, um, a, a, a bearded Iraqi war veteran, you know, working class guy telling that story. No, no, obviously not. So, so finding the right characters with the right background, the right voices, but there's a huge diversity in the number of, of the, in the authors who gave stories, many, some are, you know, uh, from Santa Domingo, you know, they're sort of their backgrounds, like Celeste Ng, who's, who's you know, Chinese, or has, a, you know, an Asian background, you know, and she, her story is about her grandmother, uh, who, you know, emigrated from China to the United States, and so it's important that the character who told that story had to be a person who was of Chinese, had a Chinese background, and and so forth. So, so it was like a puzzle. Mm -hmm. 
fitting these pieces together. And I wrote two stories. And then I thought, oh, who's going to tell these stories? What jackass is going to, what character going <laughs> to? So I, I, I said, well, he's not going to be like me because that, I don't want a character like me. So he turns out to be this old um, ex-communist. You know, he's a guy who's a communist. He was a, he's a card-carrying communist. You know, one of these old leftist types who's, who's kind of an, uh, an idiot, <laughs> you know. Um, not, you know, um, and of course the, the super of the building, his parent, she's, she's, her parents were from Romania, and so she just thinks the communists are horrible, and as they were in Romania, and it was just, you know, both her mother, her grandparents were executed by the Securitate in Romania, so she really dislikes this, this you know, communist, pseudo-communist guy who grew up in a suburb of Boston, and and uh, is just full of hot air. So that was the character who told my stories. So, but then the, there were some of the you know, authors donated characters, like one author uh, suggested a character called Eurovision, who uh, goes to the, I didn't even know what Eurovision was, and, but then I had to look it up, and this person goes every year goes to the Eurovision contest was canceled. It was going to be in Rotterdam, but because of the COVID pandemic, it was canceled. This is a terrible thing. So he becomes the, he becomes the MC on the roof because this is what he loves. Music, you know, this is what he loves to do is to be the center of attention and be on stage. So he sort of becomes, he's the guy who like gets everyone to tell stories and he starts bugging people. You haven't told a story yet. And, you know, I'm not going to tell a story. Yes, so you can't stay on the roof unless you tell a story. So, so. So that, that's, and then there were other characters too that were really unusual that were suggested or donated by authors. You've given us a few clues as to some of the real life uh, authors and the people on the roof. Are you going to have a contest to see who can name them all? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very interesting because, you know, that you, you can't do it. That's the thing. You cannot. You can read this book, and you are not going to know who wrote which stories. You know, I mean, like for example, Diana's stories. You would not think that these stories were written. You would think that these stories were written by a nonfiction author because they're so beautifully, you know, in that nonfiction mode. So, and then like Hampton Sides, who you, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a nonfiction author. He's never written a short story in his life. Well, he wrote a short, a short story about a guy who swims across the Mississippi River, a guitarist, right, who swims across the Mississippi River and is bitten by a gar, which is a horrible, like, prehistoric fish, and his arm becomes horribly infected and almost has to be amputated. And then I thought, oh, my God, who's going to tell this story? Well, I thought, oh, the, the doctor who almost had to amputate the arm is going to tell this story. And then there's a musician who then that suggests to him a story about, uh, about music and anyway, so. Is it, you've done it? You swam across the Mississippi River? Yes, it was north of St. Paul, Minnesota. God, well, I would, 
Well, swimming across the Mississippi River is a bit like climbing Everest. You know, that's, you gotta, that's something to brag about <laughs> if you survive it. Just look out for those gars. Oh, did you? Wow. Well, that's impressive. Yeah. But my, yeah. There was a, well, you know, Margaret Atwood was the one who sort of did the recruiting and, uh, and others su making suggestions and so forth. Um, but most, the, the funny thing was that most authors who were asked said yes. This was a big surprise to us. We thought, you know, one in 10, but no, it was 80% said, yeah, yeah, I'll I like this idea. I'll write a story. So we almost had to shut things down prematurely because we were worried they were going to get too many, too, mu too much material. And we, we did have a couple of stories that just couldn't be made to fit. Um, but mostly because they were not written in the first person and were so off the wall that you, you couldn't really figure out what to do with them. But right. Doug, can you repeat the questions when they're asked? Oh, sure. Yeah. The, the question is, artificial intelligence four years ago really wasn't a problem. Um, what happened was that originally the impetus was that the Authors Guild was in a financial crisis because we had to cancel our gala party, which raises half a million dollars. Uh, it was an absolutely devastating time for authors because all the bookstores closed, all the libraries no, closed. No, no, they didn't. Not every bookstore closed. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Yay, Barbara. Why, we, we just, yeah, we did, and we just, uh, you know, moved to Zoom, which was better technology. Yeah. I'm going to come up here yeah. anyway. Good. We did Thanks. our first virtual event in 1995 with P.D. James, and we uh. had an overflow crowd, and it was terrible technology. Uh. And then we worked our way through every iteration. Zoom came along at exactly the right moment. You know, and it is the best technology. It was really just sort of like a gift. So we just kept going. Let's and thank hear you. It. Let's hear it for oh. Barbara Peters. No, 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 no. And the best bookstore in the country. No. My point was I we should thank all of you because, you know, it's not like if we were here and nobody showed up, we would have kept going. <laughs> so it was it was all about you. Um so I thank you for that. I wanted, in apropos to his question, and I did mention James Patterson, can you talk a little bit about what Jim is contributing to yes. this whole project? Because he really deserves a ton of credit for what he is doing to help authors everywhere. Yes, this is really important. You know, the Authors Guild was in, was in negotiations with OpenAI, and they were trying to tell us, oh, it's absolutely impossible. There are thousands of authors. You know, how are we ever going to, you know, get, you know, license their books, et cetera, et cetera. And we said, well, there's a simple solution to this, um, a licensing system like ASCAP or BMI, you know, for music. And, you know, they're all, oh, it can't be done, it can't be done. Well, that's a bunch of bull. Um, and James Patterson, with an incredibly generous donation to the Authors Guild, we're taking that, those funds, and we are right now building a licensing system so that all these artificial you know, in 
companies building artificial intelligence systems can come to the Authors Guild and they can get hundreds of thousands of books in one license and the authors will be fairly compensated for the use of their work and authors who do not want their books ingested by AI machines can opt out. So that it's, it's a rational system and it's really, this is the future of AI. They're gonna, it's not just authors, it's a whole creative, AI has ripped off the entire creative community of our country. And this is one of the strongest economic uh, engines we have. I mean, we export our creative work to the entire world. I mean, how many, how many languages are your books translated into? 43. 43. So that's millions of dollars of, of that you are bringing into this country to fix our balance of payments um, because of your creative work. And this is true of what we do. So, so this licensing, so, so all these creators are going to eventually, I think, see that their work is fairly licensed by AA systems, ingested, you know, artists, musicians, photographers are all going to have to be compensated fairly for the use of their work. And so that's what we're really on the cutting edge here of uh, setting up this licensing system, thanks to James Patterson and this very generous, you know, uh, grant to the Authors Guild. I also think it's important to point out that there is an opt-out clause in case an author or any creative person does not want their work. Diana has, over the years that we have been together, had to deal with something called fan fiction, which is kind of another, I don't know how many of you know that Fifty Shades of Grey was started out and was basically a ripoff of Twilight and turned into, yeah, um, turned into an incredible, you know, money, money maker and so forth. And it's really difficult to know how to deal with that. And we know that people have sued Hollywood, for example, you know, for um, taking their creative work and not paying fairly for it or, you know, whatever. You know, the fan fiction thing. How have you dealt with that? I made them pay me. <laughs> well, How do you make the, them uh, pay no, you? Not, to, not the actual fan fiction size. Them, you know, after you know, token resistance on my part, I just said, there's no point in this. You can't stop them. Uh, uh, what I said to them, I said, look, you know, just open address to all of you. If you are so inspired by my fiction that you want to you know, write your own story concerning the characters and so forth, redhead and write it. Just change the names from Jamie and Claire to, you know, Sam and Agnes, and I will be perfectly happy. <laughs> and, of course, they're not going to do that because they want to steal my characters because no one's interested in reading of their a story about Sam and Agnes. If you use those two names, Jamie and Claire, well, what about this, you know? And they'll read it no matter how bad it is. So at that point, I just said, you know, <laughs> go in peace, you know, Dar darken my door no more. Yeah, in other words, stop sending me stuff about, you know, how, how righteous you are for doing this, you know. I thought, I thought about, about that. There was a feature in either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal on Sunday about the Hallmark Channel, which I personally never visited, but I'm now going to do it, um, and how they've had the most watched movies in 2023. But for Valentine's Day, they are doing a whole dive into Jane Austen fan fiction. And I thought, poor Jane. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, there's really nothing she can do. But I mean, if you think about the Sherlock Holmes and the Jane Austen and how that, and you know, Mickey Mouse just came out of copyright. And so AI, I think, is really going to go to town on the mouse 
um, and you know, I, I, you know, at one point was the librarian at the Library of Congress, and I worked for a point in the Copyright Office, and I don't know how much we appreciate the value of copyright and just what it has allowed, you know, authors and publishers and musicians and playwrights and you name it, artists, um, to do to protect their work from, you know, basically piracy is what it comes down to. Yeah, the, the uh, copyright was written into the first article of the Constitution, not the First Amendment, the first article set out copyright in the founding, the founders of our country had the vision that the scrappy little country that they were creating would might someday or would someday become the creative engine of the world. And that's what's happened. And that, you know, copyright, that they were already thinking back then about the importance of protecting, you know, the intellectual property of creative Americans. And I'm happy to say that when I went back, because we blew through our first 1,450 copies of this, you guys may think that you've bought the only, but if you looked at the back of the bookstore, it's hysterical. I mean, there are rivers of those books back there that Diana came in and did for two afternoons last week, and Doug came in early today. Um, and then I had to go back for more because we had completely sold out what I thought was a reasonable order, and the publisher had already sold out its entire first printing and was back to press. So I had to go s to another um, source to get the extra books that we got. So, and this is all before tomorrow, which is the actual publication day. You are here, especially a day early. And I thought, isn't that great? You know, that a book that wouldn't necessarily, you know, grab a lot of people um, has done so well and how much money it's going to turn out to make for um, the Authors Guild and all these projects. And if you look at the cover, you will notice that the names of all the authors are around it. And Doug's stuck up for everybody because publishers would probably have just put John Grisham and Margaret Atwood and Doug and Diana on the cover. That would have been it. But, you know, Doug said, no, no, no. You know, if you're going to put any, you're going to put all of them. And good for you. Well, you know, you're going to have fun uh, taking this book around and going to other book signings with authors who were in that book and getting it signed. You know, the first person who gets all 36 authors to sign a book is going to win a prize here. I wonder if I might get Margaret Atwood to come if I tell her that you will all show up and get her book signed. I mean, no, it, it is a fun project. Um, and you might also mention that the Authors Guild hosts something in the fall now in the Berkshires. Um, and they, I, I know I haven't personally been, but there have been two... Uh, very special fundraisers in the fall. That's right. Well, it's called the Wit Festival, and it, it, it takes place in, um, in, in the Berkshires in Lenox, Massachusetts. Uh, and it's free. It's free to everybody. Um, and it's, we, we bring a number of really distinguished authors in and have panels, and they talk about their books. And, and uh, it's been really, really successful. And then there's the Santa Fe Literary Festival that Diana was at last year. She was one of the, the uh, keynote um, uh, pre presenters at the, at the Literary Festival. It's two years old now. Uh, this, this next year is going to be the third year, but that's really uh, something that's... But that, that, those, the, you have to pay for those tickets. That's not free, but you can get them virtually. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, you can. Right? Okay. The pandemic did teach um, various organizers that there were ways for other people to join in. So those of you who are watching this on streaming, and I forgot to welcome you earlier, and I apologize, you know, 
many times people choose to just stay home in their jammies and watch our events here at the store. So, you know, Zoom and COVID together made it possible to do a lot of things that previously were were not available, mm -hmm. were not even economic. Um, you've sat on these chairs patiently for over an hour, and I'm sure your butts are tired. Um, so um, I did mention that Diana, <laughs> I'm going to get it right this time, February 22nd, yay! Um, <laughs> Right, February 22nd, we'll be doing an event with the Scottish baker whose name I can't pronounce. Can you pronounce his name? It's basically Kenneth, Kenneth, Kenneth McLeod. Kenneth McLeod. Oh, goody, but it's, Gaelic, but it's basically Kenneth. It's spelled in Scottish, right. But anyway, um, and that'll be up at the, um, at the United Methodist Church, so that'll be really fun. Um, but that fundraiser is for the poison pen. <laughs> I, can't, I can't say that the money is going anywhere else, but it should be a lot of fun. Um, and um, there are recipes and all kinds of fun stuff there. So, And what is it? Um, Doug will be back on April 22nd with Jim Rollins for his book. And then we're neg negotiating a summer event date for his next book with Lincoln Child. Um, and Diana, what are you doing after you leave us in February? You're heading off, what, to Scotland? Um, yes, <laughs> we're going to Scotland. I have been invited to be the guest of honor at uh, the biannual banquet, uh, semi-annual banquet of an outfit called the Keepers of the Quash, Q-U-A-I-C-H, <laughs> which is one of those double-handled little um, cups that you drink whiskey out of in a ceremonial fashion. They are actually the Scotch whiskey arm of Diageo, which is a huge international uh, uh, conglomeration of uh, liquor distillers and uh, and marketers and so forth. So uh, anyway, they uh, had Sam Hewen as their guest of honor last year because he makes Scotch whiskey. So I've been invited. They're flying me and my husband to Scotland, putting us up for two nights in their very luxurious Glen Eagles places and so forth so that I can spend 10 minutes telling them about Scotch whiskey. <laughs> <So> <laughs> they specified and they said no more than 10 minutes. <laughs> you need to take that. your golf clubs, honey, if you're going to Glen Eagles. <laughs> I've played there, of course. <laughs> and it's wonderful. Um, news came today, important news about um, television, so casting. Now it's public. Uh, you yeah. want to mention yeah. all that? Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you mentioned fan fiction and making them pay for it. <laughs> That's what I had in mind was the television <laughs> show. <laughs> Man. Uh, because, well, the um, Outlander show is, is yeah, based on my books, and that's the, the actual marketing term that they use on the, on the front matter, uh, which means that they are basically adapting the story from my books. There's no way that they can film it all, but the bulk of it is directly from the books. You know, have scenes and stuff that is, you know, from there, the lines, the dialogue, etc. Okay, well, the position of the prequel, which I've had in mind for several years, but it wasn't an, of any pressing need until they suddenly <laughs> got close to the end of Outlander. said, well, this is cool. We want to keep it going. <laughs> you know, what else you got? And I said, well, you know, story of uh, Jamie Fraser's parents, essentially, and so forth. And so they uh, negotiated with me for uh, what turned out to be three prequel books. This is because I was thinking, you know, be one simple book about the same size as the Lord John mysteries and so forth. But then I began thinking when I was beginning to set up a timeline for that, and I said, well, his parents have to have met about here if I want them to be at uh, Sheriff Muir, which is a huge battle at the end of what was called the 15, and, uh, and hanging around for the, uh, the 19, 17, 19. 
which was another failed invasion. Uh, and I said, but on the other hand, we need to get Jamie into the story at some point. And Jamie is their third child. He was born in 1721. So after you know, all this stuff has been happening, what am, how am I going to get them past Sheriff Muir, which I anticipated would be the end of book one. And it still will be. It was going to be the book at that point. But I happened to go to, well, to Glasgow for these, uh, this uh, conference. And we were poking around and ran into the National Scottish Portrait Gallery, which is a very cool place, and I re highly recommend it. But they have two Jacobite rooms, which have portraits of all of the Jacobites with explanations. And they have this lovely little timeline for James III explaining what he did while he was not <laughs> putting together invasions and so forth. He was trying to raise money all over Europe. And so after the, the downfall at, at Sheriff Muir, it wasn't really a downfall. It was one of those battles where nobody could figure out who won because nobody did. Um, but he had gone back to Scotland uh, or back to uh, the continent and started trying to raise money, first in France, then in Spain, uh, then in Sweden, and finally in Arabia, of all places. And I was thinking, okay, and his timeline fell very neatly into these these three chunks. And I said, okay, it's, a, it's three books then. All right, because we have to you know, work this all out. I have no idea what's going to happen in book two and three, but I don't normally have any idea what's going to happen in a book <laughs> when I start writing it. So this is nothing, <laughs> nothing unusual. So anyway, I told the, my agent, well, I've got the, the prequel, which is three. And meanwhile, I'd been talking with the, the show producers, who I know very well by this time. And they told me that uh, they had got approval for the first prequel, and they really hoped to be able to make it three seasons. And I'm going, well, that would be very handy, wouldn't it? So we <laughs> got three books, yeah. So anyway, uh, they've paid me for three prequel books, so I will have to write them. <laughs> and consequently, the book publisher did too. Uh, so uh, uh, there will be, I should live so long, but there will be eventually three books <laughs> or have a prequel nature. Now, I should say, state here that I am not putting aside book 10 to write these. <laughs> no. <laughs> book 10 is at the top of the heap, and it is the po project that I work on every day. Some days it's only an hour. Some days I get you know, half, a, half a day or something. Or I can go to my old the family house in Flagstaff and sit there totally uninterrupted for three days and work. On those days, I can get through a lot. But anyway, I touch it at, at least once every day. You know, the prequel, I touch maybe two or three times a week and then half-hour doses at most. But it's going to be a much smaller book. However, uh, they started filming the prequel uh, uh, two weeks ago, in fact, though they only announced it today, what they were doing, causing a lot of uh, stir and so forth because they said it is not only the story of Jamie Fraser's parents but of Claire's parents as well. And, you know, for years and years and years and years, people have been saying, oh, what happened to Claire's parents? We really want to know the story of Claire's parents. I say, well, they don't have one. They died in a car crash when she was five, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to write that story. I am just not interested in them. Okay, I'm still not interested in them. But the people who are writing and doing the TV show are. <laughs> and so they said, oh, well, Matt Roberts said to me, I really, really want to write uh, uh, Claire's parents' story. And I said, well, I am not going to write that for the book, so it's all yours. Do what you want. So, you know, this is what you might call licensed fan fiction, that part. I, I, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't want to denigrate Matt's skills at all by calling it, you know, fan fiction. I just mean I didn't write it, you know, and the ideas involved in it are, in fact, Matt's, you know. But uh, the other part of the prequel, the part dealing with his parents and so forth, do come from my own work and from the book that I am writing. So basically I am now writing two books and I'm also writing scripts and consulting for two
two TV shows, the first of which I have not written the book for. And so we're, we just agreed that we would uh, talk to each other as we went along. And uh, I will tell them what I have in mind. I'm going to do this, and it's going to work out this way. And, and then they send me a script, and I write back and say, okay, this will work fine, you know, but along the line I'm going to do this. And you ought to have in mind what you're going to do with your secondary storyline when this happens, because <laughs> good luck. Yeah, so anyway, <laughs> we'll see how it works. But, you know, so far, so good. <laughs> And I, I've seen the original dailies for the first two weeks shooting, and they're really, really good. <laughs> yeah, I just love all of the actors who have been picked to play the, the three Mackenzie siblings. And the young Ned Gowan and the young Mrs. Fitz are wonderful. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I listened to this about three books in the prequel, and I'm deeply cynical, because if you recall, <laughs> Outlander started out to be a trio. Well, first of right. all, it was one book, so and then it expanded, yeah. And then it was going to be like there were only going to be X, and then they were going to be only Y. So, you know, I figure until Diana can't write anymore, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I hope will be forever in the future, mm -hmm. nonetheless, I never pay any attention now when she says, like, three books, I go, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are wise to do so. It's just that fans and publishing people are very concrete about things. They say, we want a new book, we want a new book, we want a new book, et cetera. And I know, but the story. But they demand the to know, you know, when is it going to be out? And I say, right. well, <laughs> whenever. Right, so the stories yeah. keep pushing along, and, you know, the, they keep expanding kind of at their own volition, I know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, thank you all very much um, for coming this evening and for buying a book and supporting the Authors Guild, and thank you, virtual audience, for watching us. And what I'd like to do now is give away a book. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.